Welcome to Mayo Clinic Q&A. I'm Dr. Sanj Kakar. COVID-19 has changed many aspects of life, including routines like going to the doctor. Mayo Clinic has navigated the COVID-19 pandemic and has safely reopened the practice to meet the needs of the patients, including my area of expertise, orthopedic surgery. Joining us to discuss practice medicine during the pandemic is my colleague, Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Noel Larson. Dr. Larson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Dr. Kakar. It's a pleasure to be here. So Dr. Larson, can you tell us how Mayo Clinic, and in particular the Department of Orthopedic Surgery, has gone about safely reopening the practice so we can take care of our patients? Absolutely. Well, as you know, um, patient safety and um, appropriate hygiene practices have always been a priority at Mayo. And it's one thing I enjoy about working here. It's, it's a clean environment. Um, but certainly there are additional challenges uh, in the face of COVID. And after we had a, a pause in our elective practice, it was a big effort to bring um, surgeons and patients and staff back in a method that would be appropriate and safe for everyone. So um, we have infection control uh, doctors and nurses working all the time. In addition to that, Mayo uh, created a new team called uh, the Strategic Management and Resource Team, which has a nice acronym of SMART. Uh, but basically the idea was to disseminate um, best practices throughout the institution. So the, the first line efforts um, we undertook um, were universal mask wear. So everyone on the campus wears masks, uh, eye protection, and then there's higher level of use of personal protective equipment, of course, for, for patients who are known or unknown COVID status and for high risk type procedures. In addition, uh, we implemented um, a limited visitor policy, which I think has been challenging for all of us. Uh, we're used to bringing our, our um, closest trusted allies with us when we go to the doctor. And both for the pediatric and the adult practice, we, we are limiting the number of visitors just to try and reduce the number of exposures. All of our um, non-essential um, staff, many of them have been transitioned to work from home positions. So you will notice that the parking garages and uh, the administrative areas of the campus um, are a little less crowded. Again, trying to reduce the number of exposures to each other. Um, in addition to this, we have social distancing practices and use of eye protection. Um, we have um, implemented higher level of cleaning practices um, such that all surfaces are, are cleaned in the, in the patient areas, um, you know, every hour basically. Um, so so we've, it, it, we've put forth a lot of um, um, steps. It's unclear which ones are most successful, but I would say on the whole, the, the battery of precautions has been very successful at restarting our elective practice in a safe and productive manner. Yeah, you know, you mentioned about the the cleaning. I, I've just noticed, and I'm sure you have in the outpatient uh, practice setting, when you see a patient and the patient leaves, how the nurses and the attendants run in, they clean everything that's supposedly being touched by the patient, and they do it uh, on every single patient. And, and it's like a pit crew, uh, is how I, my analogy is. They come in, they do it, they move on, and the new patient comes in. And as you're, you're right, every surface, and I, I've been amazed how many different surfaces are touched, and yet they're all clean to the highest level of, of detail. Yes, and we're using a variety of um, facilities approved uh, cleaners, but basically the light switches, uh, the door handle, the sink, the computer, the seats, uh, the tables, again, everything that someone might come in contact with. Um, is being disinfected. And additionally, in the lobbies, everything is being disinfected. 
um, we've um, implemented, you know, elevator precautions to limit the number of individuals on, on the elevator at one time. Um, but interestingly, as we learn more and more about COVID, it does seem to be um, um, something spread through the air and through droplets. So the masking, I think, is, is probably the, the primary move that has, has really been essential. And I think it's challenging, particularly I have a pediatric orthopedic practice, so how do you get a two-year-old to, to wear a mask, right? Um, but, but on the whole, I've been very impressed by our providers and our staff and our patients and their ability to wear a mask and willingness to wear a mask. And I would say it's a safe thing to do. You hear things about you know, limited oxygen capacity, but for the most individuals, wearing a mask is extremely safe. Children over two, we think it, it's safe to do. Um, most people um, can do well with a mask. And I think that's probably been the one step that has um, been most helpful as far as um, preventing transmission. So as you said, as a pediatric orthopedic surgeon, not only are you taking care of the child, but also the family. So how have you negotiated that and your colleagues in the area of pediatrics? We've been doing more um, uh, virtual medicine visits, and I have um, actually learned a lot. Uh, to see the child in their home and their natural environment, having them show me their room and their playthings, or seeing them out in their backyard running around, uh, I mean, that's like the ultimate uh, post-operative visit, right? Uh, to, to see the, the child in the environment. So, so we're doing more virtual visits, at which point you can have any number of family members. And in fact, we've been able to do three-way virtual visits where we have one parent at work and another parent at home with the child and me, and we're able to discuss the medical problem. I think the physical exam is difficult with a virtual visit in some instances. Um, I'd say it's been challenging for the important discussions. At one point, we were limiting it to one visitor, um, so having only one parent there and making important surgical decisions about a child's um, orthopedic um, future. That, that is challenging. Um, we've been able, at least in certain areas, to open it up to, to two visitors, and that has been much more helpful. And, and then I'd say the other challenging area for me is when I've been treating a child for five or six years, and then they turn 18. And, and for adults, uh, particularly for adults in the hospital, the visitor um, policy is, is a little stricter. We are just allowing one visitor from 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. And that's hard for an 18-year-old who just turned 18 and yesterday was a 17-year-old, and now they only get a parent there during the day with them. But uh, for the most part, we've had um, you know, a lot of discussions. Um, again, the patients and families have been very understanding, and, and all these steps we are just putting into place temporarily to protect them and, and to protect our, ourselves. So, but it, it's an unusual situation. Never in a million years would I think I'd be limiting uh, the number of visitors for my patient who, who just had surgery. It's, it's no, but as you, as you mentioned, you've worked creatively with the virtual visits, as you said, and seeing the patients at their home. And I, I think that's probably the most important for pediatric care to actually see how the child interacts at home in their natural environment. You mentioned uh, about the SMART team and with, with the deluge of information that comes in on how COVID is changing. Uh, how, how do you stay abreast of all this information to ensure that there's safe practice here at Mayo Clinic? Basically, I act um, as a conduit uh, between the infection uh, prevention uh, committee and uh, kind of the institutional leadership as far as the steps that different departments and different areas are taking to prevent COVID transmission. So, so we have uh, conference calls and in-person meetings. Um, we have um, kind of walkthroughs where I walk through all the orthopedic spaces and look for areas of improvement uh, as far as social distancing and mask wear. Um, but again, the, the, the model is 
um, orthopedics is pick one person to try and learn more about it. And then I filter the information and then um, present it to the department in meaningful aliquots, meaningful chunks of information that you can use, uh, news you can use on a daily basis. And, and again, not subject the average orthopedic surgeon to all the, all the um, in-depth uh, details that maybe they don't need to know. So I think it's been a very effective model and Mayo has used this for, for other major practice changes um, of, of teaching one person to then go out and share and hopefully improve the practice. Then also I learn from other divisions too. I mean, the challenges that pediatrics are facing may be similar to what internal medicine is facing or general surgery. And so the different practices can talk to each other and, and share ideas and then um, move those new protocols throughout the whole institution. Well, as one of your partners, I can certainly thank you for all the uh, information that you've disseminated to us in the little aliquots, as you said, for us to be able to distill it in our practice. And we truly are grateful for that. Now, Dr. Larson, obviously your area of expertise is in in pediatric orthopedic surgery. Can you tell us any new advances in, in how you're treating your patients? My primary area, area of interest is scoliosis, which is a side-to-side -side curvature of the spine. And for some reason, um, adolescents, as they hit their rapid growth spurt, um, the spine can start to grow in a curved fashion. And most of the time it's incidental, but about one in 3,000 children, it can become quite a severe deformity and eventually affect um, breathing later in life and, and certainly contribute to back pain. So for scoliosis, um, our treatment options have been relatively limited historically. We, we've had bracing, which, which works for moderate sized curves. And then once the curves become quite severe, our primary go-to option has been a fusion. Um, and I, I brought a model of a fusion. I know our viewers can't see, but it, it's, um, you know, rods and screws where we fuse the back. And it's very, very effective. It's been around since the 70s, but it does um, limit motion over the areas uh, where the curve is. And there's concern about that being a, a cause for arthritis long term. Um, and so a, a new technique was developed about 10 years ago, and we've been using it here for about five years. And it goes by a variety of names, but what the common is vertebral body tethering. Um, and basically, instead of putting a, a solid rod in the back, we put a plastic cord. And this cord acts as in, an internal brace. So it holds the spine in a corrected position. If the child is still growing, we actually see um, the scoliosis reversing itself. So we've kind of reversed the, the vicious cycle of growth causing the curve and um, we ask the, the cycle to work backwards and the spine actually straightens as the child grows. Um, as powerful as the fusion, but it does allow the child to retain motion and we uh, retain um, the normal joints in the spine um, and at least it provides a stepping stone um, for the future. And, and obviously if, if the tethering does not um, give enough correction, a fusion can be done later potentially after the child has, has completed um, their high school and collegiate level sports. But it's been very rewarding that the, the recovery is a little faster and it's definitely more physiologic. That's what I was going to ask you about the patient. How, how did the patients do after this compared to traditional scoliosis? The hospital course is about a day shorter. Uh, about a, a half the children are on narcotics, uh, whereas with the fusion surgery, most children are on narcotics for one to two weeks after the surgery. Um, with the vertebral body tethering, uh, the children are cleared to go back to most athletics at six weeks, whereas with the fusion, uh, it's often three months to six months to return to, um, say, football or soccer. 
Um, and, and clinic, I, again, we're doing a lot of studies right now. We're doing a motion analysis study. We're doing an MRI study. We're doing a health-related quality of life study. Um, so at some point, we'll have data. But, but it's so new. And our FDA approval just was achieved last August of 2019. So, so the research is a little bit in its infancy. Mm -hmm. But just um, anecdotally in clinic, I ask patients, how do your back, how's your back feel? And they say, it feels normal. And, and I haven't really had many fusion patients that say their back feels normal. Sure. So how do you capture that in, in a research study where we're working on doing that? But it does seem to preserve a little bit more mobility for these children who may have 80 or 90 years left to live. Well, is there a particular patient where you feel the vertebral body tethering is, is more applicable to in terms of age or sex uh, when they present or the degree of curvature of the spine? We're looking for curves that are between 40 and 65 degrees, which is um, you know, moderate to severe. Um, curves that are flexible um, is, is preferable because it's not as powerful as the fusion. So the correction that we get is a little more limited. And then finally, we're looking for children that are still growing. Um, most of the data regarding the tethering procedure are, um, is in children who have at least one year of growth remaining. So in girls, that's typically 13 or younger, and boys, it's more like 15 or younger, on average. So when you put this tether in, do you, do you leave it in, or do you take it out at another stage, or as the patient grows, you put a, a longer one in? What do you do? The plan is to leave it in forever. Uh, and interestingly, as it's been um, presented to the FDA, that was a big decision. Do we, do we present it as a, a two-stage procedure or a one-stage procedure? There is a higher revision rate, so there's a higher chance of a second surgery, probably somewhere around 10 to 20% at two years following the surgery, whereas a fusion surgery, it's a lower chance of a second surgery, more like 5% at five years. Um, so it, it's not perfect. It's a little less constrained and a little harder to control. Um, but potentially more benefit. Yeah, no, it's good to see how you're advancing the field as compared to traditional uh, fusion procedures for these. Uh, Noelle, anything else you'd like to discuss? No, it's really a pleasure to be here this morning and tell everybody, please wear your mask. Our thanks to Mayo Clinic orthopedic surgeon, Dr. Noelle Larson. Dr. Larson, thank you very much for joining us today. Mayo Clinic Q&A is a production of the Mayo Clinic News Network and is available wherever you get and subscribe to your favorite podcasts. To see a list of all Mayo Clinic podcasts, visit newsnetwork.mayoclinic.org. Then click on podcasts. Thanks for listening and be well. We hope you'll offer a review of this and other episodes when the option is available. Comments and questions can also be sent to Mayo Clinic News Network at mayo.edu.